0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. That's plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been
1: loving, Olive in June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which
2: the michael reid podcast tune in
3: weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie
2: Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed programme with Alan Cantwell for the next two weeks. On the programme this morning, the three government leaders are in the United States this week. The first week of the Doll, which returns after the summer break. Taoiseach Lear of Raikert, Tánis Martin and Transport Minister Eamon Ryan are in New York for the United Nations General Assembly High Level Week. It's been a busy week for the farming community and things may be set to get a little busier. Notwithstanding the National Ploughing Championships, the controversy around Nitrate's derogation just won't go away. Proposed changes to speed limits across the country should be accompanied with a fresh look at the relationship between illegal drug use and road accidents, according to the Tornish and Miho Martin. And Focus Ireland, in its pre-budget submission today, is calling for a twin-track approach in Budget 24 to invest in accelerated social housing delivery while also improving the safety net to help people from becoming homeless in the first place. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so on 041 983 2000, text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658, or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Fianna Fáil leader Antonis Miho Martin led tributes to party councillor Damien O'Reilly after a sudden death over the weekend. Mr O'Reilly was a representative on Meath County Council and had been elected chair of the Ratoth Municipal District in June. Originally from Dunboyne in County Meath, he was first elected as a councillor in 2014. He was re-elected in 2019, topping the poll in the Ratoth local electoral area. Well, joining us this morning is Tommy O'Reilly, Fianna Fáil councillor in Cahirlok of Meath County Council. Tommy, thank you for joining us. You lost your best friend at the weekend.
4: I lost my best friend, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, It's very sad. Sad for his wife, Lisa, his mum Phil, and his children Kyle and Carly. He just loved them all so dearly and he was such a great man. To me, he was another member of our family here. My two sons, my daughter and my wife. I wouldn't be big into technology but I knew what was going on in every corner of the world, every corner of Ireland and every corner of Mead because Damien, God rest his soul, was sending sending this stuff to me 20 hours a day. He was just a genius as a politician. He was really destined for the top in politics. Did Did a master's there recently in engineering, signed up for a law degree in planning. Uh, only last week, the week before he was just he was just a genius a genius of a politician, that's all I can say and I am going to miss him so, so, so much and his poor family, and all in front of them in life, and on Friday he was showing me the garden he did for his little daughter Carly and rolled out sods and plastic f- fencing around and a little playhouse and all that my heart is broken, that's all I can say
2: and what compounds this tragedy is the fact that he was just so, so young. Do you know what happened?
4: Yeah. Seemingly, he, seemingly he, he had some pains in his chest or something, uh, a few pains in his chest or something, and, and uh, he said he might be he might go and get it uh, checked out, you know, and I think Lisa just said, well, I'd love to get it checked out, you know, and it must have got worse on the way, and he rang 999 on his way to into Dubai, and that was the end of it. He must have died in a second.
2: He was on the cusp, I suppose, of making the next big leap in his political career and perhaps going on the national stage. Oh, there's were, no doubt about Were that. he to do that, what sort of politician would he have been?
4: He, he, he was a genius. I never, The last man that I knew in politics that was, was up to the standard, there was no technology at that time, with the late Patrick Fitzpatrick in Nav and West. So he was another genius. I learned anything I did from him. I'm in politics because of him. And Damien O'Reilly, through technology, probably surpassed him, and that took something. Because, uh, Damien, it, it, you you, just, you can't explain how good he was. You just cannot explain. Alan, if I wanted some, some name for someone in any department, any department in the Dáil and government, Damien would have it for me. There's... Alan Cantor's number, he'd say, mm. ring him, he's in such a department, I'd be looking for. and he would be sending your query away by email while he was talking to you on the phone. That's done. That's how good he was.
2: Some people get into politics to be career politicians, others get in to try and, and make a change, albeit that can be a very difficult thing to do. What sort of politician was he? He was one that would make
4: a change, but he really, really worked for community, he worked for everyone in all walks of life, all political shades. I wouldn't say there's any politician in in the country that would have a bad word to say about Damien O'Reilly, and particularly his 39 colleagues on Meet County Council.
2: It's awful to be having to ask you this question of an individual who is being taken from us at such a young age and has been in politics for a relatively short period. But what is his political legacy?
4: Well, I say his political legacy is possibly number one in his native area, uh, Dunbound and Jock or and 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 far out to our county mead, the people that I would have on to Damien O'Reilly about different different subjects, that different queers, that had passports. They could be from Oldcastle, they could be from Ballinabracket, they could be from Slane, they could be from Cavan. But it, it, his work ethic, his work ethic, he was he was destined for the top, and I mean the very top of politics.
2: Was he good with people? Because some oh, politicians brilliant. are a little bit standoffish. They may be shy. Oh, Others no, have the no. sort, of, sort of Bertie Ahern feel about them, that they yeah. can go into a crowd and they can right. feel a presence there. People can when they're in that crowd. Was he that sort of individual? Oh,
4: brilliant. The, the crack with him. Alan, the crack with him. And he'd ring me up. And it's all Dublin accent with from Dubai. Oh, I have a cracker for you, Tommy. I oh, have a cracker for you. And... It was all fun, and my two sons and my daughter and my wife here, he would send them everything, and they just loved him. He was like a member of the family. Uh, Actually, most of the politicians around and out here, they called him my adopted son.
2: How did you strike up that relationship?
4: The night he was elected first, this man came to me in Bovinda House. The Count was in Bovinda House that night, and he said to me, John Riley was his name. I thought it was his his dad, which his dad had, had... passed away a few years earlier and he said to me, uh, would, you look, tell me would you look after this young fellow of, of course I will I said and that's where it all started on well, a Saturday night in the House and I knew John from the GA circus, just knew him wouldn't be that close to he was John and I thought it was his daddy tell me, would you look after this young fellow of ours and I said of course I will
2: and there it started And what was it about him that I suppose set him apart from other people, what spark did he have that others didn't have uh,
4: I think that the, the spark, uh, he was over-intelligent. He was just, like, the spark of work, and it didn't matter what department it was, it didn't matter what, what government department it was, Damien could get through to it. And he was, he worked as a PA to uh, Senator in David in Leicester House, and he was just loved in Leicester House. Same thing again, made friends with everyone. The lovely, lovely, lovely guy. of oh, poor wife Lisa and his poor mom, poor her children. It's just so sad. I don't know what we're going to do without him.
2: I understand but the book I'll of... Be there
4: for, I'll, you know. I'll be there for Lisa and those kids until the day I die, I can assure you that. I
2: just of, love them. The book of condolences is open, as I understand it as well, Tommy.
4: Yeah, we're opening into 10 o'clock this morning, uh, Alan.
2: And where can people sign that book?
4: In in the House from 10 o'clock. Uh, the... Library in Rotort at 11 in sorry in Dunmbaden and Civic office in Dunchaplis at 11 o'clock as well.
2: Tommy, we'll leave it there. I want to thank you thank for taking the time thank to you. come on and, and talk about not at all talk We're about um, that terribly terribly sad story of the passing of Damien O'Reilly over the weekend. that was uh, Tommy Riley Fáil Councillor and Cahirlock like, of Meath County Council joining us this morning. Michael, michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Welcome back to the programme. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086180-658 800 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Sinn Féin launched legislation to ensure that energy companies are regulated fairly so that customers are protected. Sinn Féin's Electricity Regulation Amendment Bill 23 introduces measures to ensure that the Commission for Regulation of Utilities is fit for purpose, including increased power to monitor and regulate hedging practices and to investigate and to sanction instances of anti-competitive behaviour in the energy market. Joining us this morning is Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Fein TD, for Me, the East, and Party Spokesperson on Climate Action and Environment. Uh, Deputy, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, I'm sure you you want to pass on your condolences first off before we get into this, following that tragic news over the weekend, the loss of um, Councillor O'Reilly.
5: Hi, I do, Alan, um, and, and thanks for the opportunity, um, and good morning to you and to your listeners. Um, I think, like everybody else, you know, I was just deeply shocked with that news on uh, um, in mid-morning on on Saturday. Um, I know uh, Damien going back a, a long time. Um, you know such a, a dedicated public representative. I know him from before he was elected, before I was elected, when we were both party activists. Um, just so committed to his community. Um, you know, it, it, Grace, Keen, uh, uh, Bryce. Uh, uh uh interest in politics, um, but above everything else, you know, just wanted the best for his community. Was an absolutely tireless worker, um, someone, you know, from from a distance from a from a different party where, who you would admire. Um uh we were I, I I you know, I'm I'm we were friends, you know, we would uh, talk politics, um uh, you know, even the week wouldn't go by where, where we'd be, you know, just just uh, talk about, you know, boundary reviews, upcoming local elections, um, what's happening in the area. Um, you know, it's just an absolutely devastating loss. And I think you can see from the community, from the various notice boards, just the the, the contribution he made in the community. um I think there's a, a real outpouring of, of of grief and and solidarity and support, and I want to, on my own behalf and on behalf of of me, Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin uh, generally, just to extend my deepest sympathies to to Damien's family and friends, to his supporters, to his community, to his his family in Fianna Fáil. Um, it's just, you know, far, far too young. A young man with his, his life in front of him with so much more to contribute. Uh, it's just uh, deeply, deeply tragic and um, uh, very, very sad.
2: Okay, Deputy, uh, thank you for that. Let's get into the substance matter of what we're discussing here this morning around Sinn Féin's Electricity Regulation Amendment Bill 2023. What strikes me about this bill is why there is a need for it when we have the CCPC, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, which is charged with overseeing organisations to ensure there is nothing untoward going on. So why the need for this bill?
5: So, so a couple of things one for, first of all and, and that's a fair point in relation to CCPC but the CCPC don't regulate energy companies the, the the CRU the energy regulator regulates them and one of the things we want to do in this legislation is actually to give the energy regulator the same powers as the CCPC has and you'll remember in the last 12 months the CCPC has been given additional powers so we in the first instance want to bring the energy regulators powers in line with the ccpc's um we also want them to have uh, additional powers in terms of oversight like we found it just an incredible situation that we've spent the last the guts of 12 months um listening to government and the regulator act as commentators and say saying that the savings in wholesale gas prices couldn't be passed on because hedging practices because of the hedging practices of energy companies. So in other words, they buy into the future and um, they they buy high and have to wait for those prices to wash through. That's
2: that's prudent business though. Everybody hedges. You know, airline companies hedge fuel prices. Uh, Energy companies have to do the same as well. What's wrong with that?
5: Uh, Absolutely nothing wrong with hedging. It's, It's it's a legitimate practice. Uh, there isn't. A, uh, our suggestion isn't that there's a problem with that. Where, where there is a problem is that there isn't oversight of the practice. So, for example, so what we did was um, we looked at the, the functions, the powers, the uh, um, of energy regulators across Europe, specifically um, uh, Germany, France, and Britain, and we looked at how they approach the issue of hedging because we've had. As I say, for the last twelve months, government and the regulator acting as commentators saying the the prices couldn't be, the reduced prices couldn't be passed on because of hedging practices and then when you ask the follow up question is well, you know, have, have you oversight of those hedging practices? Are they being, you know, are they being mm. straight here? Or is this a case of profiteering, of price gouging, of anti, anti-competitive practice, which is exactly what you want your regulator to have sight of and to have powers to investigate? And the regulator specifically said to me, when I asked that question at the Climate Committee, we don't have sight of it we don't we, we don't have any uh, line of sight into the hedging practices we know it happens uh, we have a sense that it's proportionate based on the the um, the size of the companies and they they take different strategies in relation to hedging based on their strength but they had no uh, line of sight, investigation powers or um, transparency uh, uh, or accountability in relation okay, to Okay, let me just take it
2: strategy. back, um, uh, Deputy, just for a moment and discuss th- those practices. As mm-hmm. we said, there's nothing wrong with doing this, but are you saying to us that energy companies hedge, which they're inc- quite entitled to do, but nobody has any idea of what they are buying you know, six months out, two years out or whatever, and what profits... And for that matter, losses may have been made on that hedging. Is is that where the the issue is?
5: Yeah, that's the case. So, so what happens in in um, in France and Germany, for example, is that there is engagement between the the regulators and the energy companies that they have sight of those hedging practices. In the case of Germany, or some of the regions in Germany, those practices are made public. Um, I would like to see that to be the case here, but I I, I would at least. Insist that the regulator has sight on them, sight of those practices, even if they're if they're not made public, because then you you know you you have the regulator has a clear understanding of well is this where does the line? Um, it's a grey line between uh, hedging hedging practices and ensuring that you know customers are protected on the one hand, and profiteering and price gouging on, on the other hand. So, at what point does hedging stop and price gouging start and uh, uh, it's it's not fair in my opinion um, or right that the the regulator doesn't have a have a size in relation to that so, so, so be,
2: because time, of that is there a grey area in relation to us knowing what exactly is on the books of the energy companies and we are therefore unaware of what they could potentially pass on to us in terms of price reductions is that the issue?
5: That's it exactly that's it exactly so and, and So I'm asking for the regulator to have uh, um, a real engagement with energy companies to have a sense. So, you know, what price are they buying at and how far out are they buying? So is it 18 months or is it two years or or is it six months or 12 months? You know, there's a difference there. If different companies apply different hedging strategy, strategies, well, then, therefore, they can reduce prices at different times. Um, and we've seen, you know, if you, if, if, if you were um, to believe that it was only hedging strategies that, that um, kept prices high in Ireland... I, I think it's an incredible coincidence that every company can move essentially at the same time, and it, it, it suggests that they all had exactly the same hedging strategy. And I don't. Okay, I don't, you,
2: um, yeah. Which comes that. to my next question. This has been moved clearly because you recognise deficit and oversight in relation to this practice. But you must have come across some anecdotal evidence or evidence that. The situation as we are led to believe that exists in these uh, companies does not actually exist. Is that fair to say? They could do a lot more than they're doing?
5: Well, well the issue for me um with with the responsibility as a legislator is that we don't know the answer to that we don't know so so it is certainly well let me put there. this I
2: to you 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 were aware of the fact that i think it may have been last thursday or friday was it flow glass flow gas who made a significant reduction in terms of what their uh price per unit to the consumer is going to be i think it was in the region of about 30 percent was it
5: yeah it was so 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 so, so that tells that,
2: us what <laughs> there's a lot more yeah, for, on the books sure. there well
5: well, well well I don't think yeah like to, to answer your question another another way I don't think there's anybody listening to this show that doesn't feel that they've been ripped off for the last number of months from energy companies in Ireland they look at the massive record profits that they are they are uh, reporting they look at price reductions right across the European Union and they don't see any of that in Ireland and then coincidentally um, everybody moves at the one time and can move to a significant degree. So there's absolutely suspicion there um, in relation to it. I have my own suspicions. What, what we don't have is absolute clarity and transparency in relation to it. And the regulator said they don't have the powers. The government act like commentators. And us in Sinn Féin, we try to address that. Actually, you know, we would ask the government uh, to, to just take our legislation and, and implement it. We would also ask the question why they haven't uh, introduced similar legislation. OK, uh, well, well perhaps
2: can I put the point to you? And it's this that, you know, meddling in the affairs of business by government is not a good practice. And it tends to scare the horses in terms of people coming into this country. And if they see that there's too much oversight on the part of the government, they run scared.
5: Yeah, that, that's a fair point. But all we are looking to do here is to bring um, Ireland in line with other European regulators. And I would actually say that we have had a light touch approach in relation to uh, energy regulation here. Also, you know, it's been quite the, the um, it's like Treasure Ireland, I would say, for for energy companies here Um and for for international international companies coming here um i you look at the energy security you look at uh, the risk of amber alerts you look at delivery of of energy infrastructure um there's such an amount going wrong in the energy system in Ireland that i think the the government of the day is coming to this question almost afraid
2: to tackle the, okay. the energy okay well, well let's here. Let's look at this piece of legislation and presume it gets through all the particular stages. Nothing's going to happen in relation to this year, and perhaps probably not next year either. And it's now that we need action, surely, deputy.
5: Oh, uh, and I, I think look, it's, it's, it's really important that we have a, a strong legislative and regulatory uh, base. I, I would say going back to that. Yeah, but are... the, the
2: horse is bolted at this stage.
5: No, well, well, for for, for the last. 12 months it, it has bolted and, and, and energy companies have, uh, will report their profits. I think there's a number of, of measures that, that we need to take to um, in the short term address the cost of living crisis and the cost of energy. Uh, Sinn Féin has long proposed the introduction of of, of windfall taxes. Um, the government are very late in introducing them and tackling those super excess profits and, and, and redistributing them to, to workers and families. But it also, we also need... Um, uh, an energy system that is fit for purpose um, that delivers low-cost energy to, to workers and families. Like, so we have to ask the question, why is Ireland an absolute outlier um, paying in the region of 80% above the EU average for electricity when we've got such a massive renewable resource? We've got a, you know, we, we could be energy independent, energy secure if the, if the government played its cards right. But so often, you look at planning, you look at grid... You look at, you know, there's going to be renewable auction results announced in the next number of weeks. They will be an unmitigated disaster for this government because time and again they fail to line up their ducks. They fail to realise the opportunity for ordinary workers and families and for the state and for communities.
2: Okay, Deputy, just before we move on, what level of support have you elicited for this particular piece of legislation? Is there cross-party support? What's Fiona Foll for saying? Or what about the SOC Dems or whomever?
5: Yeah. Well, look. There's, there is there is support. Um, there is support within within other parties. You know, as, as as you know and I know, what matters here is where government stands in relation to it, where Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, and the Greens stand in relation to it. I don't have a read of of that. Yes, we will introduce it um, at at first stage um, during this dull term. As I said, I would ask the government to pick it and uh, run with it themselves, okay. as opposed to have it pushed from from opposition.
2: By all accounts, listening to your party leader, you're on election footing. Is that the way it's looking for you, deputy?
5: Well, well, I would say we're we're almost permanently on an election footing in Sinn Féin. We can test elections north and south, and there's barely uh, uh, 12 months that passes where we don't have an election or a number of elections, and, and that's been the case for us uh, uh, in, in the last 12 months, and it will be the case in the next 12 and, and 18 months where... You know, we're, we're absolutely focused on the work at hand, mm-hmm. representing communities. Yeah, we, um, we
2: get that, but we'll, we need to look to the future as well in terms of what way the political landscape is going to shape up post the next election. That could be happening a little bit sooner than we anticipate. And if we look at the polls, and I'm referring specifically to yesterday's Red Sea poll and the Business Post, where things are pretty much the same in terms of all the polls we've seen coming out over the past at least 18 months, you were You're king of the hill there. It's a question of who you're going to dance with in the next election if we're going to get into government with somebody. So where are you at with that?
5: You know, look, we we, we take nothing for granted. And and Mary Lou Macdonald has been very clear. We're conscious that we left seats behind us at the last election. We will run the maximum number of candidates and try and take the maximum number of seats at the the next election um, based on on the outcome of, of the, the vote. Of course,
2: uh, well, that's every party's raison d'etre. But but what I want to get to is who you're going to dance with yeah, when this well, is all well, over.
5: I, again, we've we've been clear in, in relation. I know it's frustrating for people in, in kind of the the, the the run into an election and, and it might be some time away yet. Hopefully it's not. But um, it, we, we have been clear uh, as we were going into the last election. Our intention, our hope is to uh, lead a government without Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Um, hopefully the numbers would be there for uh, an alternative. That,
2: that, that's a bit, I mean, you're around a long time, you know, that's a bit of a stretch. That likelihood is, like, you can never rule anything out in politics, but that is looking unlikely. You'll have to probably, in reality, do business with Fianna fall
5: Well, and again, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be so sure. Uh, time will tell in relation to it. I think if anyone predicted the outcome of the, the last uh, general election, 6 months out they would have a very never 6 weeks never mind 6 months uh they would have uh, come to a very different conclusion than than the reality of it our objective is to to um set out our stall in terms of our manifesto um set out alternatives in terms of housing health cost of living across the whole policy platform and to try and garner as much support for for that as as is possible and then after that um, based on our strength and the relative strength of the other parties uh, with the, the, the stated objective of, of trying to form a government without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, um, we will try to agree a, a, a programme for government. But we have said that we, were willing to, we would be willing to talk to everybody after the next election. Okay. But it's all about the programme for government and delivering something different.
2: Right. What do you say to the Taoiseach following his remarks on Friday, I think it was, when he said that Although he didn't name Sinn Féin, he was clearly pointing to, to the finger at Sinn Féin, saying that if you get into government, the economy will tank.
5: It's nonsense. It's nonsense, now, and I suppose Fianna Fáil would be well uh, positioned, and, and Micheál Martin in particular, uh, to tell you about tanking an economy. Um, we all lived through it. Um, Sinn Féin, and, and Mary-Lou Macdonald, and Pierre Stoherty, and Ono O'Brien, and David Colnam, a range of of uh, uh front bench spokespersons I believe um have the team that can lead uh, and deliver a different Ireland in health, in housing, Mm. in cost of living.
2: And of of course, Deputy, um, that that will require money and you have to accept. And, you know, things are pretty much stark and black and white in a cost-of-living crisis where we see interest rates going through the roof, where we see uh, FDI and uh, monies coming into the coffers of the Exchequer from FDI slowly getting smaller and smaller. And we know that's going to happen. And you're going to be constrained in terms of the amount of money you have to spend to make the changes that you want to make. So you're going to have to cut your clothes towards measure. You accept that, don't you?
5: No, we, we do, and, and, and every government has to do that, but also a thing that we we, we, we have to do is we um, need to protect foreign direct investment, but we also need to diversify in terms of our economy. And I'll give you one example, and we touched about it earlier on. We're in the middle of a, an energy crisis. We're in the middle of an energy transition. This state can make a decision, um, and this government is making a decision currently, and I think it's the wrong one in terms of, the, the massive natural resources that we have off our coast and on our, on our land and um, how that is uh, harnessed um, fair enough for, for private wealth in, in some instances but really first and foremost for me and for Sinn Féin is with harnessing that wealth for the state for communities around the state, how do we ensure we, we had an offshore auction a number of months ago uh, to deliver offshore wind, and there wasn't one state company that was successful in it? Um, that the, the, the profits from those comp- from those uh, natural resources will be siphoned off into to private companies that are that are international. Actually, some of them will be will okay. be siphoned off into um, state funds that are abroad. So. So, there is opportunity, huge opportunity for economic development okay. for diversification in the Irish economy. And Sinn Féin have the plans and proposals. And I, as spokesperson on climate and energy, have the proposals uh, 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 fully costed to deliver on a different type of economy for Ireland.
2: Very good, Deputy. We must leave it there. Deputy Darren O'Rourke of Sinn Féin TD for uh, me, these. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Text or WhatsApp 086 or you can email Michael. Michael at lmfm.ie. The government has been called on to invest 5 million euro to combat loneliness in Ireland. The Loneliness Task Force, a coalition of charitable organisations, says Ireland is now the loneliest country in Europe, according to EU research. It's seen an increase in people suffering, the adverse mental and physical effects of being isolated since the pandemic. While well, joining us this morning is James O'Hagan of LGBT Ireland and co-spokesperson for the Loneliness Task Force. James, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, Good morning, thanks for having me on Not at all, loneliness is different things to the different people What is the definition of loneliness in the context of what you're trying to do?
0: I suppose in reality you are right it's different things to different people it means things to different communities but essentially it's the perceived gap between your personal desire for, for social connection and your actual experiences of it so there are many people we know everyone will have a variety of friends in their friend group or people that they'll be aware of some people will be happy to sit on their own all day every day and feel fully contented and other people will need more of that social connection but everyone does have a desire for some form of connection and it's whether you're able to access that and access that freedom so that's what what we would see as this issue here because it does have enormous issues for for, for mental and physical health if you aren't able to get that connection and you are experiencing loneliness and isolation.
2: It kind of runs counter to the Irish social outlook that we tend to be a very warm embracing nation that will sit down and chat with anyone but yet we have this problem. Why is that?
0: I mean, absolutely. It, 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 we, we, we've always championed the strength of our communities as, as being kind of one of, uh, like, our calling cards, uh, you know, sort of one of one of the, the things that we, we are we are strongest at as, as a nation, and I suppose to see ourselves at, at the top of that EU Commission Research Report back in June, it, I, I suppose it could come as a shock, but the reality is that the, the Central Statistics Office here have seen over the past number of years, I think from between 2020 and 2021, the increase in loneliness has gone from 6 to 13%, so that. that it's not something that just has come out of the blue. It's something that has been ongoing. And I suppose the pandemic certainly plays a part in that. That certainly is a, is going to be an enormous part of this, as many people find themselves sort of, you know, encouraged to or actively told to, you know, to, to, to take precautions for their own safety and well-being. But now it's about... How do we sort of challenge that and move back from it? Because I suppose it is something that we need to, to try and not. It's a league table we don't want to be on the top of very much. Yeah,
2: it's all very well. And I've no doubt whatsoever that the pandemic has fed into this and it has had a significant impact on the loneliness and the isolation that so many people have experienced. Young and old, let it be said, and the mental Absolutely. impacts that has had on them. but. Is there a societal shift here as well that we need to be looking at that we're p- perhaps becoming a little bit more insular for whatever reason?
0: I, I, I mean, certainly, you know, that the, as we, society is developing and changing over time, but I don't think that that's of innate desire for, for connection is changing or going away. I think it's about finding ways to sort of promote connection and ensure that communities are given the opportunity for the social supports that they need. I think that, you know, Certainly over the last number of years, people have become more insular. But I think that there is that innate desire within all of us to connect with other people. And the task force, I suppose, what it's hoping to do within that, in in that ask for funding, is to give people an opportunity to build those supports and create those opportunities Mm. for that connection.
2: We also have to ask the question, have we lost our ability to connect? We can connect no problem uh, on social media, but the one-to-one physical connection, that seems to be dying a very fast death.
0: I mean, certainly spaces for that sort of connection, you know, are so important and people may not feel that they have access to them or the ability to, to, to sort of, you know, to find that. For example, I I work within LGBT Ireland, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I work specifically around the needs of older members of the LGBT community and sort of through the the, the national LGBT helpline, which we manage, um, we were seeing a a great rise even prior, but even before the the pandemic from older members of our community contacting us because of a loneliness. And these are people who may well have had very active Social lives or very active lives around them, but that loneliness was a want for a connection within their own LGBT community. So loneliness is different things to different people. So we've established a tele service to give people that opportunity. So often it's about finding what is the right solution for that community in question and how can we make sure that that solution is there for the person that needs it.
2: And as you alluded to, it was pandemic and other uh, instances of You know, circumstances which perhaps came about uh, beyond our control that has led them to this, that the tap has been switched off. Was that fair to say? I'm talking about specifically the people that you represent in the LGBT community
0: yeah so i mean so certainly when when you look back to, to to i mean if you are if you were an older member of the lgbt community you grew up in a in a country very different to today where you wouldn't have had the freedom to, to be yourself as openly as as, as many lgbt or lgbtqi plus people are today so you were probably if you were living in your your locality or if you were living in a rural community where you weren't feeling safe to be out you probably weren't out and then the pandemic would have exacerbated that because perhaps your opportunities to 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 interact or engage with your own community, the LGBT community, where where, where it did indeed dry up. And I suppose that probably... okay. so it's it's it's
2: important that you clarify that for me, because, I mean, what you're saying is it's LGBT members of the community who have not come out heretofore and found themselves in a position that things are just getting worse because they don't have that support prior to what they had before.
0: Yes, so, no, absolutely. I, I mean, and, and indeed, you know, pe- people who either hadn't come out or people who maybe had come out to a select group okay. of people or were out, were out within the community, in, in the active communities within one of the towns and villages, but not to those directly around them. I think that's that's the, the, the population. OK,
2: and that yeah. begs my next question. Why in Ireland of today are people still afraid to come out? I thought we were a more cosmopolitan, a more open, a more understanding community. And whether one is gay, straight, whatever, it doesn't matter. A jot. Nobody particularly cares. And I mean that in, in the nicest possible way. We don't care what they're <laughs> say, Your sexuality is. I mean, it uh, makes no difference to us.
0: Sadly, Alan, mm-hmm. not, not not everyone feels the same as you do. And, I, you know, obviously there are fractions within our society who, who would have particular views around, uh, around LGBTQI, but, um, identities but more so within an individual if your lived experience particularly for older people or people who have a memory of the time before it's do they trust that the services or that the people around them have actually changed having perhaps experienced or seen friends or people they know experience um, sort of very negative reactions to their coming out and it's a very personal journey as well so you could you 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 um you know you could have all of the sort of you know the, the rainbow bunting and pride and flags around you in the world and still not feel safe in yourself to do it because the messaging is so mixed. So I think for for our community, it's it's a very personal message, and that's why I suppose we offer the supports that we do so that people have somewhere that they can reach out to, talk to, become, sort of, you know, ask those questions that they may have an anxiety about to try and sort of, I suppose, you know, alleviate some of that pressure Mm. and perhaps see that Ireland is that society that you're talking about, or more like that society that you're talking about where it is safe to be yourself.
2: Just finally, 5 million It's not a whole lot of money, but what can that five million do in terms of changing things for the better for people in this situation?
0: I thought it's going to be a massive ability to create investments and interventions. And you're right, these interventions are not necessarily going to be hugely expensive in themselves or hugely costly in themselves, but... Together, they will make an enormous difference to all of the communities that are going to be looking for them, whether that's within the LGBT community, whether that's within our, our international community, people with disabilities, carers. It'll give those opportunities to those people to be able to find that connection that they are perhaps missing out on. And it'll be able to allow us to sort of broadcast more more widely through a campaign about the issue that is loneliness, helping people who maybe are lonely but don't understand that that's what, that's what they're experiencing, uh, that this is something that they can address and there's opportunities to address it, and also for people to understand when they see the symptoms of it that perhaps this is what someone
2: needs. Okay, James, time time is against me here, but I have no doubt there are people listening this morning who find themselves in the position that we spoke about and they desperately want help. What can they do more immediately today in the next hour?
0: Absolutely. so what I, what I would say is sort of depending there are a number of amazing support services alone offer amazing support the Samaritans who are also involved in the the, the um the, the loneliness task force uh, offer offer support and so do so do LGBT Ireland and many other groups so find support and reach out often that first step of reaching out for support can feel absolutely monumental but it makes such a difference we hear time and again back through our our helpline people that had such fear about reaching out and it's transformative. When you acknowledge your need and just ask for the the support and you get
2: it. Very good. James O'Hagan of LGBT Ireland and co spokesperson of the Loneliness Task Force. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael
0: Michael Reed Reed on LMFM.
2: Now, as you can imagine, we have uh, received quite a number of calls in relation to the passing, very sadly, of Councillor Damien O'Reilly over the weekend. We'll get to those before we come to the end of the programme. Just a couple of your messages before we press on. Uh, hello, Alan. I was so disappointed last Saturday when I switched on the television to watch the Ireland versus Tonga rugby game in France uh, in the World Cup tournament. The reason I was so disappointed was because our the national anthem, was not played prior to the start of the game. Instead, an Irish rugby anthem was played. I'm curious as to know... Who made the decision that our national anthem, our own would not be played at the biggest sporting tournament in the world at the moment? It would be awful if Ireland made it to the final and our national anthem was not played. I don't think I could watch the final if that happened. Thank you. And that was from Michael. Michael, I'd love to be able to answer your question. I'm from a GAA household. I know nothing about rugby. I've never watched a rugby game in my life, I have to say. So maybe somebody out there who knows more about this than me can give me a call. Or put something on paper and tell me—is it Ireland's call that they play at the rugby games? Am I right in saying that Ireland's It is Ireland's call. Who made that decision? I don't really know. But for me, the national anthem is the national anthem. Our own, Naveen. And would I be a bit miffed if something else was played on the world stage where Ireland was representing us at a world competition? Gotta say, I might—I might be a little bit miffed. But I don't think I'd lose a whole lot of sleep about it. I mean, it goes back to the old argument we had back in the day when, you know, should rugby be played? at Croke Park. Should soccer be played at Rogue, uh, Croke Park? I happened to be at that game. When I say it was never a rugby match, I lie. It was at the game between Ireland and England in Croke Park, uh, that very famous and historic day. And it was quite emotional and it was quite moving to hear the national anthem, our Levine, being played in Croke Park. Now, mind you... What went post that in terms of the rugby game I might as well be watching a game at tiddlywinks because I just I di- didn't get it I'm sorry to say that and I know people will be screaming down the radio saying this, that or whatever about me but I just don't get rugby I'm sorry Energy prices Sarah says that uh, the cuts being proposed by the energy companies don't go far enough even with the cuts people are, still won't be able to afford their bills We're facing into the winter now and across the country there will be households holding off on turning on the heat for as long as possible in a bid to keep costs down but that is not sustainable We need action from government on this, and we need it sooner rather than later. On energy prices again, winter is around the corner, says Amy, and like many other people, already worrying about how they will heat their homes in the coming months and how they will afford their bills. People cannot take another winter like this, where they're afraid to turn on the heat or choosing to wear more clothes inside their homes. Now, what's interesting about this story... And it has been flagged on numerous occasions by uh, the Minister for Finance, and for that matter, by party leaders. There will be some measures in the budget to try and alleviate the cost of living uh, crisis, which so many families are facing and have been doing so over the past 18 months or so. Now, what level those supports will be? We don't really know. It's kite-flying exercise on parts um, on the part of government, so we, we don't have a clear understanding of what level of supports, how long they will go on for will they be the same as we've got received we received last year but we do know that there will be something there in the budget and to speculate would probably be just folly at this stage other than to say something will happen but you won't know till after the budget which is coming up uh, next month or thereabouts now if you want to get in contact us whatsapp uh, 086 658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie Now, proposed changes to speed limits across the country should be accompanied with a fresh look at the relationship between illegal drug use and road accidents, according to the Tornish of Micheál Martin. He said currently there is an anomaly in the mandatory nature of checking for drugs as opposed to checking for alcohol. He made the comments following the publication of the Speed Limit Review that it is proposing a radical overhaul of speed limits across the country with a limit of 30 kilometres recommended for many roads across the island. Joining us uh, this morning is Blake Boland, Head of Communications with AA. Blake, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Was I asleep at the wheel, Blake? Did petrol pi- prices and diesel prices go up unbeknownst to me over the past couple of weeks? Because I went to fill my car this morning and it cost me an extra €20. Euro. It was nearly €100 euro to fill it full of diesel. Did I miss something?
6: Oh, they certainly have crept up there. We we had that second tranche um, of excise duties being added
2: on ah, um, about two, two
6: weeks ago at this stage. That's day. it, yeah. But I think the, the prices had gone up a little bit anyway, so we're we're seeing them creeping past the 180 mark at the moment for sure.
2: Well, I, I think I hit the 190 as far as I know. Maybe I'm, I'm shopping at the wrong place, but but none, nonetheless, anyway, they're going up and presumably they will continue to go up. Or Where are we at with that? Is there any indication of where they'll settle?
6: Um, not really. See, We've still got the third tranche of those yeah. excise duty restorations to come. That's in another six weeks, the very end of, of October. So that'll be another eight and six sent on to petrol and diesel. So all else being the same we're still looking at something into the early 190s but that's only if the market stays the same Uh, we'll have our fuel price uh, monthly fuel price survey out next month and we'll have a lot more details. Maybe we can catch up again
2: next week on that. Yeah, sure. Listen, let's get back to these uh, speed limits. Uh, They're causing quite a bit of controversy around the country and quite rightly so in relation to some roads that have a speed limit that is just not compatible with the road and vice versa. But I think we can probably all agree that a 30 uh, kilometre an hour limit in residential areas is a good thing. It already exists, doesn't it?
6: It's very, yeah, we're having it in a lot of parts, especially around Dublin. You know, which is um, a lot more built up, ten ten miles place in the rest of the country. Um, and there's there's no doubt that um, if you can lower people's speeds down to that thirty limit. And you're much less likely to cause uh, serious injuries and and fatalities. And and the numbers are are staggering. I I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but it's just incredible when you go from 30 up to 40, up to 50 kilometres an hour, how much more likely you are to kill a pedestrian or cyclist if you're you're hit by a car. And if we can get those speeds down, it certainly will help. Will it frustrate some people? Absolutely it will. Not everybody's going to be in favour of this. But if it cuts down on on these injuries and fatalities, then
2: it, it becomes hard to argue with. OK, I'll come to the drugs testing in a moment, Blake, but I just want to concentrate on this for a moment because, as I understand it, it was late last week that Jack Chambers came out, who's leading this particular initiative, and he is putting the hammer, as it were, on officials within the department to to get legislation together, to get this across the line pretty quickly. But the reality is, this is not going to happen tomorrow, next day, next month, perhaps not even next year for that matter, because we have to go through a process to examine the roads to see what the speed limit should be, that's a long, drawn-out process. And then we have to change all the rules around them.
3: Yeah,
6: absolutely. I mean, it, it might be brought to government uh, this month. You know, then the detailed guidance will, will have to be drawn up to go with the legislation. That might be early 2024. Mm. And that will take some time to go through. Now, it's highly likely that the government is in favour of this across the board and that it will go through quickly enough. But, you know, we could still see this going on for, for at least a year, potentially. We, we, we just don't know. Um, But, yeah, it certainly looks like it's coming in, all right, but it, it absolutely will take
2: some time. Okay. now, this will only be a success if we have the proper oversight in terms of people being stopped for speeding, people being detected. Will we see... And there's talk of this, a proliferation of cameras all over the place. Will we see spe- uh, fixed uh, speed checkpoints? Will we see mobile ones? Do we have the manpower? Do we have the resources in order to be able to police this?
6: Yeah, this is absolutely, this is the elephant in the room here. And, you know, we're seeing great indications from government on, as you mentioned, the drug driving, speeding. Um, and it, it's fantastic to see that to make our roads safer. And, and it will do to an extent. But at the same time, we absolutely need enforcement. And it's very easy to say that, look, we're going to cut down on the speeds. But it's a massive program. If we think about the amount of resources it's going to take simply to get all this through legislation, but then we've got to change speed signs around the country. We've got to make sure that the relevant local authorities are are educated in how to go about this. And there will be discretion there, by the way, as well. This isn't an automatic, let's say, 100 down to 80 on the secondary roads. A, a, a local authority can have their discretion say, do you know what, this road we feel is, is safe enough, and we'll leave that limit at 100, we won't reduce it down to 80. So it's going to take a huge amount of resources. It's the training of the Gardaí, um, cameras, and, um, you know, are, are those resources going to be put in place? And That remains to be seen, and there's a lot of people that have doubts that, that they will be put in place.
2: Mm-hmm. Are those average speed cameras, are they effective?
6: So they they, they seem to be all right. It helps to, you know, we've got the Dublin Port Tunnel being being one of the more well-known ones. So, yeah, they they can. They've been shown in various surveys around the world that they will reduce it. It'll help uh, people just predict a little bit better. Do you know what? I know there's a camera here, and I know that I can't simply just speed up. I know there's a straight coming up here, and there's never any guards there, or no one flashed their lights at me. And then they'll speed up and break the limit in that particular section. So it'll help to cut down on that. And it, as opposed to being a pinch point where you're checking someone's speed, it's over a longer, longer period of that road, of that journey. And that will help
2: reduce people's speeding. And Of course, these measures have been precipitated by the horrific tragedies, particularly amongst young people, which we've wis- witnessed over the summer months in this country and the loss of life. Um, is it speeding alone, though? I mean, should we be looking at a more, you know, rounded view of what is happening on the roads and education and the the actual structure of roads itself.
6: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there was 130. I checked the statistics there on on Friday, and it was 130 deaths so far this year. You know, up from 105 in the same period last year, and even beyond that as well. Like last year, there was 812 serious injuries on the roads. You know, and these aren't just statistics; these are people. But um yeah, absolutely. What the point that you're making there is is just speeding. No, there's it's just it's across the breadth of society and a whole host of factors. So speeding is one that's gotten the most attention, perhaps in the last two weeks. A little bit more on drug driving now last week as well, but it's a lot more than that. It's about making sure that people aren't distracted driving. So are they on their phones? Um, are they catching up on, on reruns? You know, with the the phone displayed in, in in the car, and just making sure that people are paying attention. But are people driving when they're extremely tired, which can equate to consuming some alcohol in terms of your ability to drive that car? So there's a whole host, another big one that, that we don't talk about as much as well as the condition of the cars on the road. And, mm. you know, we've got the AA breakdown vans out on the road all the time. Doing but with the NCT, are we cars, saying that we need no. to
2: look at the NCT and maybe tighten things up a little bit more?
6: Well, yeah, the NCT has suffered some backlogs over the last year or so. And, and that is coming down. They are working on it all right. But it goes beyond that. As well. The NCT can only catch so much as well. So If you feel like your car is not in good condition, you need to get that checked. It's your responsibility to look after your car as well. And if you're driving on tyres that are not fit for purpose, maybe they're worn down, you really need to make sure that you get that checked and get your tyres in good condition as well. So it goes across the whole board and we can't just simply place the onus on the government and the Gardaí to put those enforcement measures in place. It's personal responsibility here where we all need to just make sure that we're doing
2: our best to make the roads a bit safer. Okay, talk to us a little bit then about um, mandatory... Have we lost...? We've lost them Anyway, never mind. We'll come back to it in a moment and um, we'll get them back in the line uh, while we're waiting to do that. What I'll do is just bring you some of the comments we made uh, that were sent in to us in relation to the, the tragic loss and death of uh, Councillor Damien O'Reilly. Mary was deeply saddened at the sudden passing of Damien O'Reilly over the weekend, as Tommy O'Reilly said in his interview. Damien was a lovely individual who worked hard and tirelessly for his community. He had time for everyone and no query was too small for him. She says her heart goes out to his wife and family who must be devastated. Their personal loss is immeasurable and his loss will be felt by the whole community. In relation to Damien Anthony called in to add his voice to the tributes being paid to Damien. He says he has... Reason to go to Damien with a couple of issues over the years and found him to be so approachable and helpful on every occasion. He was an absolute gentleman and his loss will be keenly felt by many people. And what's up? Helen in Dunshockland said, beautiful mark of respect to Damien. What a loss he will be to the community. And finally, Mark called to say, what a lovely few words from Tommy about his friend RIP Damien. Now, Blake is back. Blake, how are you? I'm okay, D- thank you I don't know what happened there Drug driving Now it's hopefully Well, they're hoping to get legislation across the line That it will become mandatory Just as is um, alcohol testing How will it work?
6: Yeah, so we have these um, I suppose you wouldn't really call it a gadget But we'll all be very, very familiar with COVID tests From, from the last few years And it's, uh, it's something quite similar Where they take a little swab of saliva And it get put back into this unit And then these things can actually work In, in give or take about four, five, six minutes and it give you a reading back on what type of drugs have been consumed. So it'll test for the likes of cannabis, cocaine, benzodiazepines, opiates, and so on. But the more modern tests will even, even go after um, amphetamines and methamphetamines as
2: well. Um, it, will it be workable? I mean, you'll get the, the result there. And then it's probably, as you said, it's a bit like an antigen test. The lines come up or whatever. Yeah, you're on drugs and it'll tell you. And then you're hauled down to the police station, to the guard of the station. Yeah, is that the way it works?
6: So, yeah, obviously it will depend as well on, on how much it's consumed, you know, in terms of impairment as well. So in the past, it's that kind of, um, you know, OK, drugs are detected in the system, but you, you might not be at the level where you're impaired. You know, if
5: you
1: have
6: gotcha. amount of alcohol, um, that doesn't mean that you're above the limit or, or impaired to drive. So there's just a little the quirk there that obviously they'll be looking at tightening up for, for sure.
2: I'm curious as well, um, and you may not have the answers to this question, but it just struck me that somebody, for example, who was away for a weekend in Amsterdam and partook in whatever, smoke and whatever they smoke, that stays in your system for quite a period of time. And I presume any test that you do will show that up. So that, that creates a bit of a problem, does it not?
6: Yeah, that comes back in there in terms of the impairment to drive. And on this point, like, are there ways that we can say, you know, with, with alcohol we're all a little bit more comfortable with that, it takes X amount of hours for X amount of units to go through your system, and that might be a little bit more tricky with with, with drugs, and they will all impact us in different ways. But this is where the personal responsibility comes in as well. And just knowing if you don't feel like you're, you're fit to drive, then absolutely do not do it. You know, you've got to make that judgment to yourself and go, you know what, I'm not, up, I'm not up to scratch here, I can't concentrate as I should do. And you know what, I'm not even going to take the risk if I'm not 100% confident in myself. So beyond what we can actually tell and come up with formulas on how long it takes a drug to get out of your system, you still have to make that choice yourself and just do not take any risks on that.
2: Mike Boland, Head of Communications with AAR, and thank you for joining us. Just before we go into a break, uh, we had far more educated people than I when it comes to our own Levine and Ireland's call. So we got these two in. On uh, WhatsApp and email Alan. There is a simple reason why Ireland's call was written, especially by Phil Coulter, for the rugby team because it's an all-Ireland team comprising of Northern Irish UK players and players from the Republic a compromise anthem had to be found to suit all participants. And I, for one, think it's a good rousing tune. That's Tony from County Lad. Thank you for that, Tony. Derek also was in touch to say, Ireland's call represents all 32 counties, while Aron only represents the 26 counties. Michael go Reed, Reed on, LMFM. on LMFM. Welcome back. It's been a busy week for the farming community and things may set to be getting a little bit busier, notwithstanding the ploughing championships, the controversy around a nitrates derogation just won't go away. Joining us this morning to discuss this and other matters is Pat O'Toole, political editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Pat, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I know it's all about planning this week. We'll get to that in a moment, but we need to clear the decks with a number of issues. First off, did the Tea Shock throw Charlie McConloge under a bus over the derogations?
1: Um, depends on who you talk to.
2: <laughs> sense,
1: uh, Charlie McConnell and uh, his advisors would say no. Um, the Taoiseach would say no. Uh, Simon Coveney went on uh, Drive Time and did a, a, a radio interview with Sarah McInerney where he tried to build a bridge between what the other did and uh, And where Charlie McConnelog had been in the oroctus committee because while the the doll was not in session, the Eroctus committee was, and uh, the oroctus Committee on Agriculture met on Friday morning to discuss nitrates and even as Charlie McConnelog was saying that the negotiations could not be reopened or revisited around where the changes that had been made to the nitrates derogation um and just to briefly touch on them, so the n- nitrates there um the, the it governs the, the uh, stocking rate farmers will stock at. It's about organic nitrogen. So that's the uh, what animals excrete. Mm. And we have a derogation in Ireland in recognition of our outdoors grass-based system. Um, around Europe, it's 170 kilos a hectare. We're on 250. So obviously that's a significant dispensation for Ireland. And then we have... Um, uh, the, a review regularly of, of that uh, facility um and in the current midterm review of the current three-year program so 18 months into it and um, the, the change came about uh, that it's reduced to 220 kilos for those parts of the country where water quality is not improving and uh, because nitrates uh, get into our water and uh, w- that's not good so um that's what. The game is about. Farmers are saying that this is being foisted on them. It's sudden. They're, they're unprepared for it. It'll mean a reduction in their stocking rate of up to 15%. And uh, It's that, culling the uh,
2: national herd by stealth. That's what they're saying. Is that a reasonable uh, assumption on their part? Well,
1: it's part of a pincer movement of a number of different things which are happening at the same time. And when you put them together, um, that is almost inevitably going to re- re- result in, in a cull in the national herd over time. Uh, We've got the carbon targets, the sectoral targets, with a reduction in the carbon output of uh, 25% linked to, but separate to the nitrates directive, which is about water quality. We've air quality rules, we've soil quality rules. We have banding of cows, which is, I suppose, the loading that is attached to each cow, and that changed at the start of the year. We've increased slurry storage regulations, a combination of which would mean farmers will have to invest uh, in up to 25 to 30% extra storage for the slurry that they, their cows are producing. So when you put all of those things together, yes, farmers feel under attack. And that's why they were out in force at the Fianna Fall mm-hmm. thinking in the horse and jockey last Tuesday, why they re- the IFA refused, and the other farm organisations, with the exception of the ICMSA, refused to go into discussions with yeah. Charlie mcconn the previous Thursday, and why they met with Leo Varadkar, who seemed to open the door for renegotiation by committing to invite the Commissioner for the Environment to come to Ireland to visit dairy farms, to see for himself the efforts that are being made and the steps that are being taken to deal with the current targets.
2: He saw votes. He saw an imminent and looming general election and he did not want the wrath of the IFA. So he decided, let's put Charlie under the bus. I'll sit down with the farmers, bring over the Environment Commissioner, Virginia Sinkovich, and have a discussion around this. That's that's the, the cut and thrust of it.
1: Yes, but uh, in, in bringing in Sinkovich he could sink the ship because this is how coalitions fall. And you would say, looking at the opinion polls, the last thing Fine Gael need right now is a snap election. But uh, you had Colin Markey up in Loud, who is a dairy farmer and a Fine Gael MEP. Uh, Tim Lombard, who's a Fine Gael senator, senator, uh, the Fine Gael spokesperson on agriculture in the Oireachtas and uh, a dairy farmer in Cork, which is a very heavily affected area by these changes, and both critical of the department accepting the commission's uh, amendments to the nitrates derogation. Uh, so it, it does feel like Fine Gael are going a little rogue on this issue because it's a Fianna Fáil minister uh, in Charlie Maconlough and also a second Fianna Fáil minister because it's about water quality. This actually falls under the uh auspices of dara o 'Brien who is the uh he 's the uh Minister for the environment as if he hasn 't enough to do with housing he 's also the competent minister for this issue ultimately so there, cracks certainly appeared in the coalition over this issue last week. There have been huge efforts to try and mend over those cracks over the weekend, and we have to see what happens at the ploughing. Will the, uh, will the sticking plaster hold, or will there be a rift between Fianna Fáil and Fine on this issue and other agriculture issues as we move into the autumn session of Dál Do- Éireann?
2: Now, it comes at a particularly tricky time for um, the IFA to try to get renegotiation on this when you think of what's happening up in Loch Nay, And I think it was um, an analysis was carried out over the past number of days which pointed to the fact that the majority of the nitrates are coming, 60% are coming from land from farmers putting uh, slurry and putting fertiliser on their land. So that's a clear indication that all is not right. So we need to do something, we need to ensure that we have a derogation that's fit for purpose and that is workable for the environment as well.
1: Yeah, there's huge environmental pressures uh, and, at play uh, in modern society and agriculture uh, is a significant player in that, especially in Ireland because we have a very intensive agriculture, it's grass-based, uh, we're unusual in that Uh, Almost 90% of our farmland is is in grass and has livestock on it. In most European countries, it's kind of half and half tillage and and livestock. There's a reason for that. We're really good at growing grass, and we're really good at turning that into meat and milk. Um, Only New Zealand really compares with Ireland in terms of efficiency of that. We do have to import feedstuffs because we don't have enough tillage. But that means there's huge environmental pressures, as you say. It's something that farming is working on uh, but, but the, uh, there's push and pull. One of the things farmers are looking for, and this falls to the third par- partner in the coalition, uh, Eamon Ryan and the Green Party, they're looking for Eamon Ryan to deliver on his commitment of 200 anaerobic digesters. Anaerobic digesters could play a huge role here because they can take in the slurry as di- and, and feed it back out as digestate, which is, would have much less impact on our, on our water quality. Um, and that would be land spread to grow grass, Uh, which would either uh, feed cows or be feedstock for the anaerobic digester. So you could have a circular uh, nitrates cycle there within uh, a network of anaerobic digesters in intensive dairy and also, very importantly for the northeast of the country, um, intensive poultry and and, uh, pig units, Mm. because they are also having significant problems finding land areas to spread their slurry on and, and their poultry litter. Um, Very valuable resource, um, really good for the soil, but but has to be used judiciously.
2: Okay, just before we get to the ploughing, can I just ask you, is the IFA still the behemoth of an organisation they once were when it comes to lobbying? Do they still carry huge clout?
1: Well, they got the Taoiseach to to move on Friday against, uh, you, you could say, against one of his own ministers. So... That would indicate that they still have some clout. It's a really interesting question, and it's a bit like saying, are the movies as good as they used to be? <laughs> uh, I, I've been involved uh, either observing or active within farming politics all my life. My father was a national officer in IFA back in the 1980s, so I suppose I grew up with it at the kitchen table. Um, and th- th- there is that sense that there was a golden era in the past, where the IFA were more effective and had more leverage. Against that, what I would say is that the issues are far more complex now. And uh, there's such a huge range of issues. Environmental pressures may have existed 40 years ago, but they weren't a political issue and farmers weren't feeling much pressure on it. Um, So it it is really complex. The cap is very complex. The, um, the, The green agenda, the farm to fork is very complex. Global trade is very complex. And and I suppose um, farm incomes are the constant. Farm incomes have always been under pressure. They've always, the average farm income has always run at about half of the average industrial wage. Farmers have huge pride in what they do. They, um, you know, we have a big expo this week in the plowing championships, and they still uh, flock to the IFA. There's about 70,000 members in the IFA. They elect a new president uh, in December. But meanwhile, we have a huge proliferation of farm organisations mm-hmm. reflecting the diversity of opinions around the complexity of issues. I chaired a meeting in Ballinasloe and Rewetting that was a bit controversial, organised by Michael Fitzmaurice back in July. There were 11 different farm organisations present who spoke, and that just gives an in- indication of the patchwork nature yeah. of farm organisations nowadays.
2: Listen, um, Pat, we will get to, get to uh, the planning, but your answer there prompted another question I want to put to you, and you mentioned Michael Fitzmaurice there. We saw on Friday that there was a new political party registered, the 100% Redress Party, which was to do with MICA, nothing to do with farming. However, we've had the conversation over a number of, of months, nearly a year at this stage. Your own newspaper published a poll around the establishment of a new party, a farmer's party, and there was overwhelming support for it. Is there any movements afoot for that being established? And I say it because we're coming up to the local elections very soon.
1: Yes. Uh, the answer is yes. I attended a meeting yesterday in Port Leash of the Farmers' Alliance who have stated that they will be a political party. They unrolled some of their manifesto at a very lengthy meeting yesterday. It went on for bones of four and a half hours. Um, they, uh, and, and they are on the pitch. Um, who,
2: who's heading that up?
1: A farmer from Donegal called Lee McLaughlin was the founder. Uh, Liam founded a Facebook group called the Irish Farm Discussion Group, and that's become very popular. Um, and other founders include Helena Sullivan, a beef farmer from Cork, um, uh, and uh, Cormac Power, who is a farmer in Galway, um, and Adrian Telly, uh, also in Galway. So uh, they have um, them. I, I'll be honest, the meeting, uh, uh, there was about I'd say 80 people there. I don't know how many of them will become activists in the party mm-hmm. and how many people were there to hear the, the wide range of speakers they had present. Um, but uh, I suppose every political movement starts small and some die on the vine and some grow big. It could all be about timing. Um, Michael Fitzmaurice has openly toyed with the idea of...
2: But, but I think that's all he's done. He's, he's toyed with the idea. There's yes. nothing more than that, is there?
1: No, but what he has said very clearly and on the record um, is that he will either form a political party or step down. He will not stand as an independent in the next election. Michael Collins, the Cork West TV, who was part of the Rural Alliance, along with Matty McGrath, the Healy Ray brothers... Uh, Richard O'Donoghue and Carol Nolan have said that they want to extend that loose informal alliance of independence of like mind around rural issues ahead of the next election so there's a range of options which may be before farmers in terms of... okay Pat,
2: Pat, they're screaming at me here to get out of this but I want to cover the ploughing. Explain to yeah. us the significance of the next few days to somebody who has no agrarian blood streaming through their veins. How important is this to the farming community?
1: It's massive. Um, there will be the bones of 200,000 people will pass through Rataniska over the next few days. It's bigger than the electric picnic, which was held next door uh, two weeks ago. And um, it's culturally significant. It's politically significant. It's a social day. It's been a tough year for farmers. And hopefully the sun shines. It's a glorious morning where I am here in Ferns and Wexford. Hopefully we get a few fine days. The water will recede because it's very wet up there at the moment. And people get a chance to get out and socialise because above all, it's a day out.
2: Very good. we we'll leave it there. Pat O'Toole, political editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, michael Reed on, on LMFM. WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. One other text that came in on WhatsApp in relation to Ireland's call on our own event. Andy May says it's because rugby is an all-Ireland game, therefore includes the North. Ireland's call is a conciliatory compromise. Thank you for that, Andy May. Now, you may have read this morning that the government's uh, shared equity scheme for first-time buyers could be extended to second-hand homes in next month's budget with Housing Minister Dara O'Brien open to such a move. Mr O'Brien has come under pressure from Fianna Fáil backbenchers amid concerns There are currently no supports available for first-time buyers who wish to purchase second-hand homes, despite up to 100000 being available in grants for new bills. Well, for more on this, we're joined by David Hall, Director uh, of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation and CEO of iCare Housing. Uh, David, good morning. Thank you for joining us. This is a good idea, no question uh, about it, but will it happen?
7: Good morning, Alan. I I think it should happen. I hope it does happen. I know... The Minister has been, in the last couple of years, looking around for different projects to you know, help people buy houses and get a home ownership amidst the housing crisis. So it doesn't make any sense that this would be limited only to new bills. It makes no sense in a marketplace where people are having no choice because of a lack of supply to go looking at second-hand homes. And uh, those homes are being transacted on a daily basis. So it's quite discriminatory in one sense not to allow those uh, the value to be given back to second-hand uh, purchases.
2: Now, perhaps the rationale behind not doing it at the outset was the danger of it inflating the price of second-hand homes. That still exists as as a potential threat, doesn't it?
7: It does, yeah. Like Once you have a simple economic feature of a lack of um, supply when demand is so high, and in Ireland, rightly or wrongly, we have a very keen interest in, in home ownership. But one of those reasons is that we regularly get compared to people renting and other jurisdictions around the world where they've got long-term rental agreements we don't have such structures in ireland so it's an unfair comparison to make and it's an unfair mild criticism of people having an obsession about owning their own homes because many people have this mindset that rent is dead money and indeed it is dead money when you don't have low rents and you don't have 30-year rental agreements as they do in germany Another country, so it is very logical for people to want to have the security and the safety in a very uncertain rental market of having their own home not everyone can afford it house prices will continue and have continued to increase they have over recent months leveled off because of inflation because of high interest rates and indeed because of um, other programs that government have announced uh, for people to apply for.
2: Just on that point about long-term rental and you uh, alluded to the likes of Germany, it also happens in Holland and other European countries. And it's, I think in Ireland, it's more than just a mindset change that we have to look at. I mean, it's, it's in our DNA, for whatever reason, that we must own our own home. And once that is there, it's next to impossible to change. And long term renting is not a bad proposition. Once the fundamentals are in place, that it is an attractive proposition and that the securities in place for tenants and landlords.
7: Yeah, and I think th- to start from the outset, because none of those certainties and, and safety and security, Alan, are in place, people over you know, over decades upon decades have had a mindset The only way of securing that is purchasing your own property. And we have an obsession in relation to property. We have, you know, property porn and we have property websites and property programs. All you need to do is look around everywhere, look at all the different advertisements that exist around everything to do with property and shows and stuff. We do have that obsession. You don't have that interest in a rental property in trying to fix it up and mind it like you do in Holland, like you do in Germany, because it is your home For 30 years, so there is a balance. But Irish people have an inherent and unhealthy, as we saw when it came to the crash last time round, and indeed many people now are under immense pressure, having relied on low interest rates on the security of a tracker, which is no longer their friend. So it is a a challenge. It is um, an issue that's there. But as you mentioned, the lack of security of a rental market and the safety and security of a rental market, a proper regulated rental market, and indeed. You know, landlords over the years have been the pariah, and I think that's been a mistake that's been made. Uh, unfortunately, there husbands been some cowboys, uh, but ultimately the long-term security of good, decent landlords was never celebrated properly and encouraged.
2: Is it a fair criticism of the government that they have not sufficiently or adequately advertised what is available for potentially first-time buyers who just don't find themselves financially equipped to buy their first home? Because there are a lot of initiatives out there, you have to admit that, David, in terms of what's available.
7: No, there are a lot of initiatives. I think the overall criticism I would make, and, and from a frontline provider of services and housing services and social housing, is bureaucracy. This is not being dealt with in the climate it is, which is an emergency. It is a humanitarian disaster in relation to those who are homeless, those who are seeking housing, those who are on social housing, those that are vulnerable and indeed then those who are in mainstream employment who are looking for homes to buy. And this is a crisis that deserves the respect it deserves as that of a crisis, similarly to the recession, similarly to the bank crisis, similarly to COVID. No sort of bureaucratical uh, nightmares have been shortcutted as has happened in the other two instances I gave examples of, where we 298 pages of legislation to bring in promissory notes and to save banks. We had the COVID where billions upon billions were correctly put in place. They're not criticisms of those two responses. They were appropriate responses given the crisis that exists. I don't understand how the government can see with its own two eyes without having to visit any opticians that this is one of the greatest humanitarian disasters and one of the greatest embarrassments of all time. 13,000 individuals are in emergency accommodation even on an economic basis even if you disliked those people who are homeless and those who are looking for homes and didn't like the property market, you have to sit back and say this is costing me as a selfish taxpayer money.
2: Of course it is, but, but nonetheless, David, public. you have to accept that there has been an uptick in the terms of the number of houses that have been built so far this year. And we're looking, look, if we were to believe the Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland, we look like we're going to exceed targets for 2023. That's a positive.
7: A hundred percent. There's absolutely no doubt. I can tell you categorically, having dealt with Daryl Bryan the last couple of years, I can tell you categorically, there's no doubt in my mind that every effort he is making to try and and fix this. And I can tell you, as you said correctly, there are successes. Uh, The difficulty is that those successes, to my mind, are born from a frustration where I believe they could be better with some bureaucratical releases that can be taken and changed. Give me an example. Three houses we built in Arteign. Um, and they're ready the last number of months and are occupied now the last few months but until they're built only until they're built and at the moment they're built are there people vetted to be put into those homes where in northern ireland they're pre-vetted and ready for the second that house is available people are put into the home immediately whereby we have an average of a two-month window where we start beginning the process only when the property is built And some the basic bureaucratic and logical things that could be released by the department to help things greatly there's no doubt Many people are trying to make okay. this effort and efforts are being made but bureaucracy standing in the way of success
2: Very good, we we'll leave it there David Hall, Director of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation and CEO of iCare Housing Thank you for joining us Michael, michael Reid on, on LMFM. LMFM Welcome back, you can text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie Focus Ireland in its pre-budget submission is calling for a twin-track approach in Budget 24 to invest in accelerated social housing delivery while also improving the safety net to help people from becoming homeless in the first place. Focus Ireland is calling for the following following, and I won't read them all because it's a veritable shopping list of wishes which they want the government to introduce in the budget. As well as increase the supply of social housing they want to introduce a programme which will capture unused planning permissions to deliver up to 10,000 social and affordable homes at an estimated cost of £300 Ensure that all children who are homeless and have complex needs are allocated. A designated child support worker funded through Tusla, and strengthen and streamline the eviction ban safety net measures with actions including increasing the national tenant in situ guideline to approximately five thousand to reflect demand, and the list goes on. Um, we're joined by um, Mike Allen, advocacy director with Focus Ireland, for more on this. Mike, thanks for joining us. You know, we we have to be realistic here, Mike. That shopping list you you're not going to fill it in terms of what your expectations are when it comes to Budget Day twenty four, surely.
3: Uh, thanks, Alan. Um, probably not, but I think being realistic means recognizing the huge amount of money that uh, the government is currently spending just on emergency accommodation. And because they haven't invested properly in housing, because they haven't properly invested in prevention and so on, every year the amount of money that you spend on just emergency shelters, hotel rooms and so on grows. What we're saying is you, you shouldn't be just so gradually Wasting money in this in this way, we need to be looking at the ways in which, at budget time, we can allocate money that's available in ways which, in the short and long term, will actually reduce the amount of money mm-hmm. that this
2: costs. So, well, with all I due respect, the, to, uh, the minister for finance is the man who has his finger on the button. He knows what way money should be spent. He's got the experts around him, and they're telling them that this is the way you've got to spend it. And Mike Allen, although he wants. X, Y, and Z from the budget. He's not an expert in this in this particular area.
3: Well, I think we're an expert on, on homelessness. We're listening to the people who are experiencing it, and we're seeing the amount of money which is being spent on keeping people in homelessness, which would be much better spent on getting them out of out, oh. out of homelessness. Um, I mean, w- 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 the, the amount of money which is currently just going into the emergency the accommodation is enormous. And one thing that we're really struck by is the fact that most of our analysis is based on the government's own official statistics. But when we go to government and say, do you know what your official report that's on your website uh, and a PDF document actually says about your spending, they go, oh, what? Where did you get that information? So there is a, a, a really strange lack of connection in which uh, the, the government isn't even okay. looking at its own its, its own data. There's, and, there's a couple
2: and, of things, Mike. Best to do. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to just uh, perhaps delve into a little bit. Um, and you outline that there are policy recommendations in the pre-budget submission which require no budgetary yeah. allocation. Talk to me about those.
3: Yes, yeah, so we've been doing that for the last couple of years because the reaction you get when you put in a budget submission is quite reasonably the one that you've just put to me as a, as a journalist, is, well, you know, everything you, you, you say, want, everything you want costs money. So we sort of list a number of things which wouldn't cost money. Um, so, for instance, one of them is, like, we, the, as the government keeps on saying, we're, we're producing more social housing now than we have for decades, and yet the level of homelessness isn't going down. In fact, it's, it's going up. So one of the solutions is, well, we've got that housing. How could we better allocate it to get people who've been struck, stuck in homelessness the longest? So you might find, so the way we currently allocate social housing is the length of time you've been on the list. But if you were in private rented accommodation and weren't on the housing list because you didn't think there was any need to be on the housing list, and your landlord sells up and you become homeless, you can get trapped in homelessness for year after year after year. And People, I think, would recognize that that isn't really fair. Um, It's it's not a measurement of need. It's a measurement of when, administratively, you thought it was a good idea to put your name on the list. And the end result of that is families, individuals, get trapped in homelessness for a long period of time. So what we're saying is the housing is there. It wouldn't cost you any more to allocate it to the people who are most in need. Um, It's not all of it, of course, but a certain proportion of it. And you would make a big impact on homelessness numbers and on the people who are suffering the worst from, from the experience of so the children who are suffering.
2: Yeah, the most worst. people get that, particularly where children are concerned that they should have some sort of priority. But that then just, you might as well rip, rip up the list system then. What's the point in going on a list when you know that maybe somebody with two or three children who are in a situation, probably worse off than you, get bumped up the list? There is that argument yeah. as well, Mike.
3: Yes, there is, a, there is that argument, but I don't think people have that much difficulty with the notions. If you go into a, uh, an A&E, and you've got a small cut in your arm, and you may be waiting for, like obviously nobody should be waiting at all, to, you know, that's, we, we all know that's the ideal position, but you've got a small cut on your arm, and you might be waiting for several hours, and somebody comes in with their arm hanging off and, and bleeding to death, you don't say, well, hold on a minute, I was ahead of you on this queue, you've got to wait until you die. Um, we didn't do that in COVID. We said, "Look, you know what we're going to do is prioritise the people who most need." People understood that that there is a fairness in mm. it. So we're not saying throw up the throw the list away. We're not saying anything like that. We're, what we're saying is a certain proportion of our housing supply that's becoming available needs to um, needs to go to the people who've been homeless mm. for longer. Quite simply, if the government doesn't do that, it does it isn't serious about ending homelessness. It's saying we're going to end homeless, but we're going to do nothing different than we're already doing.
2: I don't think there's anybody who disagrees with that notion, Mike, and there has to be a degree of fairness and a degree of targeted measures Mm -hmm. towards those most at needs, but having that conversation with somebody who is on the list, their perception of their own position could be equally as desperate as somebody with children who's in an equal position, so it's not a question of, well, they've kids, let them off my position is just as bad, I need to be there as well, I need to get a home and you've got to respect yeah, that, so that there will be people on that list who will feel like that.
3: And I think that comes down to the question, absolutely, and I understand the position of the family or the individual you're talking about. This is addressed to politicians. So if politicians want to end homelessness, it requires prioritising the people who are homeless, when to some extent, giving a fairer share, a slightly fairer share of housing available to people who are homeless than we currently do. If they're not interested in that, and they think that the that that they want to absolutely take the argument you're saying, fair enough, that's a decision. But stop telling us you care about homelessness. If you're not willing to do anything to prioritise it, you don't. You effectively are saying we're going to accept it. There's so 13,000 human beings homeless at the moment. You know, almost 4,000 children. Unless we start doing things which are different, that is going to get worse. If people want to keep on doing things the same, then make an argument and say, you know, we're not going to do anything about homelessness because we're more concerned about the, the negative effects of somebody who says they've been eight years on the okay. list and a staying for their parents. And yes, we understand that they're in difficulty. Yes, of course, that's, that, that's important. But it's not as important as somebody who's been forced to live in a homeless hub for three years.
2: Okay, we leave it there. Mike Allen, Advocacy Director with Focus Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is it. Till tomorrow, same time. From me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM.
3: To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
0: When
1: you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.